Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about taking healthcare mainstream and from reaction to prevention. In order to have this great conversation, we have two guests, Dr. Anna Huschlag, Chief Scientist and Co-Founder of Furley, and Hamish Gerson, Founder of Thrive. Welcome, guys. Hey. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So let's kick off by walking through what you guys do. Uh, Anna, do you want to maybe kick off with an introduction about Furley and what the mission of it is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Furley, formerly Leica, which was renamed due to not wanting to be the dog that died in space, um, is a company that started out of a business builder called Zinc, and we were set the mission to improve the mental and emotional well-being of women and girls. And my co-founder and I got together, and we found that within the first kind of two weeks of all of this, nobody was talking about sex. Um, I think for both of us, this came across as uh, a pretty big gap, all things considered, and I think we also both kind of had our own personal connection to that. So um, Billy experienced sexual assault in the workplace. I was raped when I was 15, which is how I lost my virginity. And it was these things that we were very much aware of how sexuality influenced our overall kind of experience around mental and emotional health. So we dived into that um, and then spent a good nine months basically speaking to all sorts of women from different backgrounds and found that a lot of our focus is around the physical side of sex as opposed to understanding the mental and emotional side of sex. So we put together Furley, which is all about sexual well-being and pleasure. And it's basically set out to redefine the way we think about sexual well-being. So our mission is to create a space where women can explore what pleasure means to them in their daily lives through the lens of sex. And our future is a world where Every individual can understand and nurture the most important relationship they have. That's the one they have with themselves, and we're using sex as a way of actually exploring this. Excellent. Hamish? Yeah, so um, Thriver.co um, is a business with a, a really very straightforward mission. We are setting out to empower anybody to understand and to track and ultimately to improve what's really happening inside their bodies. And the subtext is that actually we want to make suboptimal health a choice. Um, the way that we do that, practically speaking, is we use um, at-home health kits, whether that's an at-home blood test or an at-home uh, saliva test, to help you really easily get access to biograde data uh, that lets you make a informed, proactive decision uh, about your well-being um, in a way that you currently can't today. And I think the, uh, the question that I should probably start off by addressing is, you know, hey, where does this all sit relative to the NHS, um, given that that's the dominant healthcare system in this country? And foundationally, the, um, the thing I'd invite people to uh, spend a bit of time unpicking is this false dichotomy between sick and well, um, because it is just that. It's not actually a, a reality when you get out and talk to people. And what you find is that between sick and well, you have a great number of questions and concerns and minor ailments and sub-optimizations, if you can call it that, for the uh, tech community. Um, and that's very much where Thriver uh, aims to add value uh, by, as I say, helping people within that package of uh, shades of grey uh, to make progress towards the health goal. Well, Hamish, I, uh, as you know, I'm a customer and, and love the service of Thriver. And, you know, I 
went through some really interesting uh, data, you know, that um, that the results gave me, and it was very enlightening for me to to read the report given by the GP that reads the Thriver results, and um, it, it allowed me to spur some early action on on some of that data, but. You know, data collection is half the battle. You know, there there have been in this space, and, and Anna, you probably have witnessed this as well, controversial discussions around like how how is it that a startup can collect data, you know, appropriately at the same quality as like a lab or as a hospital, and then secondly, once that data is acquired, you know, whichever means, the next one is uh, how do you make sure that the technology has validation to to be accurate and be useful. Or does it require a partnership with somebody? And maybe you can give me your thoughts on, on how you thought through the Thriva service to make sure that you not only have a trustworthy product, but also that it delivers on the promise. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, this kind of gets to the heart of <clears throat> the entire business, right? Because if you, can't, if you can't add value to people in the way that you're promising to, A, people don't take value out of the service, uh, and B, you open yourself up to actually entirely justified attack. Um, so there are two things I'd probably call out. One is where we sit within a value chain and why we sit there. So we have chosen to partner with tried and tested, highly accredited UCAS tier one um, existing traditional laboratories. And to call out the elephant in the room, uh, what that means is we're not opening ourselves up to Theranos-esque risk. So Theranos were piloting a way or pioneering a way, um, in theory at least, to test blood Um, unlike the centralized laboratories where your blood gets sent if you've passed into the doctor or uh, the hospital traditionally. And the reason that we've done that is precisely because actually we don't believe that today that is the mainstay of the problem. Quite the opposite. Actually, we think it's a a huge part of the solution. The testing itself, uh, by being established and by being a part of the value chain that we can rely on, by partnering with that element, we get to borrow from that credibility. So I'd say that's a, you know, a really, really big part of um, how we think about it. And we can go into a little bit of the detail of the pros and cons. The other element, I think, again, that is entirely uh, rationally perhaps a little misunderstood is around this discrepancy in the method of collecting blood. When I say blood test to someone on the street, they have, uh, in their mind's eye, big needles, trips to the hospital, pints of blood, uh, because that's historically what blood uh, testing has looked like. Our method sends a kid out through the post uh, and you collect a finger prick sample on your own. So it's both unassisted and a significantly smaller volume. And the questions that we get asked around the comparative clinical quality or accuracy of the traditional uh, venous versus capillary drawn samples, capillary being finger prick uh, that we use. And there are a couple of things to point out. One, Uh, is actually the sample volume that the laboratory is taking and running is the same, regardless of whether you've taken two liters or 600 microliters. The other thing is that the um, the laboratories themselves have to be able to prove, and uh, the analyzer manufacturers have to be able to prove, that they can get to the same level of clinical predictive accuracy looking at a venous-drawn sample as a, a capillary sample. Um, So we are unable to buy a test from a laboratory unless they themselves can demonstrate to a regulator that they have the level of accuracy that we need to be able to stand behind to add the value that we're promising to the customers that we do add. So that's a a big part of it. The other part of it that's uh, often misunderstood 
uh, again, entirely rationally, is that uh, somehow it's the method of collection that is the driver of difference. And actually, what you find is that it's the time delay associated with putting something in the post, I mean, actually it's spending uh, 24 hours getting to the laboratory, which for particular analytes can cause uh, a discrepancy uh, versus an immediate uh, analysis. So if you uh, took a sample, analyzed it straight away, put a, a sample down for half an hour, something like uh, creatinine, which is a marker for kidney function, would elevate fairly predictably uh, over time. So suffice it to say, you know, we work very closely with our laboratory partners to be able to identify which analytes or biomarkers or things that we test for are stable and appropriate to be tested in a remote setting like the one that we use. Mm. That's very helpful to know. It sounds like you really thought through both sides of the spectrum, both the labs and the collection side of things. And, and there's very quantitative uh, expectations, right? Like take this blood, there's this marker, it gives me a, a, a range of like, you're good to you're not so good, and off you go, you know, take, take action. Um, Anna, with regards to Furley, you kind of sit on the other end of the spectrum, and it's not a spectrum that is any less important, it's a equally important and often neglected because it's not as easily quantifiable. Um, maybe you can walk us through, and there's a several other businesses that are starting you know, to immerse themselves into this space now, not just in sexual health, but when it comes to mental health. And, and these are harder to track, harder to quantify, harder to like, there's no sample, there's nothing. Walk us through kind of how you guys thought about approaching a problem that is, you know, less labby kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I think for us, it's been, it's, it's a question we're still trying to figure out. And I think part of that is because the default is we think in numbers. Um, you know, I think for us, we're very much on the quali qualitative side of things, certainly at the moment. And it's, it's not only almost arguing for the legitimacy of that data, but also being in what is very much a new category of space. So I think some of the things we've found, there's, there's different elements around the data in terms of what we're collecting and how do we create a space that needs to be infinitely based on trust, um, particularly because a lot of the women that we're speaking with are sharing really personal experiences and stories. So while we're not a therapy app, a lot of the experiences that people share with us are very therapeutic. And I think one of the challenges we've found is how do we actually create a space in a very early, initial, immediate way that allows people to feel they can trust us. I think, yeah, there's been different strategies on how we've done that. I think a big part of it is saying, okay, we need to make sure that the information that we're providing then is grounded in science, that is fact-checked, that it's very much evidence-based. I think coming from a background of being a researcher, we've been quite strict with our ethical processes in terms of how we think through the data and, and the content that we're using. And I think on that, there's an interesting one. So we've actually drawn on what is called the biopsychosocial model. And it's been used quite a bit in treatment, for example, of obesity or diabetes, but it's not really been looked at through the lens of sexual well-being. And the, the kind of essence of that model is if you think of a Venn diagram and you've got one circle which is the biology, one section, one circle which is the psychology, and one circle which is the sociology. And in past we've kind of only looked at those elements independently, so um, you know, erectile dysfunction, um, lack of orgasm for example would, would fit in the kind of physical side of things. In the psychological side of things, we'd be thinking about anxiety, stress, etc. And um, we haven't really even touched on the sociology side of things. And our approach has said, okay, in order to actually understand our relationship to sex, we need to be drawing on information 
and, and research and science from all of these three different circles and we kind of need to sit in the middle of it. So our approach is very much on allowing people to understand um, how the body works, understand how the mind works and understand the influence of the social world on that. So I think in terms of how we provide a trusted space, it's it's thinking through the frameworks that we use and a lot of those frameworks do come from you know, years and years in research and also from kind of tried and tested clinical studies. Um, and I think that's that's really important for us is almost building the trust up front um, and thinking through how we actually do that. So I'd say that's that's kind of phase one. And then in terms of what we actually do with our data, so to speak, or this kind of conversation around how our data gets used, I think for us it's been very clear from the beginning that the only reason we use it is to basically further support the people that are using us. So I think a lot of this we've drawn on principles of humane technology um, and kind of digital well-being and comm technology in terms of thinking about how we kind of set this principle. If, if we wouldn't feel comfortable giving that information, we're not going to ask for it. Um, and I think that's been really key in terms of providing a space where people can share what is quite personal data. Again, not just kind of their sexual health, but very much the mental and the emotional side, both in the present state as well as past state, and know that that data is going to be kept private and kept safe. Um, and I think what's actually been really interesting is through that we found there's a big emphasis on storytelling. And so I think within our community, the reason in which we kind of first started doing this was so women could share their stories. And what we found is in creating a space that's fundamentally built around trust and around this kind of research-based approach to how we think through these different aspects or dimensions or kind of complexities around our sexual well-being, we've created a space where women are starting to share their stories and starting to kind of open up in a way that I think they often haven't been given the rights or the space to do in other aspects of their lives. So it's, it's interesting because while we're all about privacy, what we found is in creating a space for privacy, it's actually created a space for openness where people can share should they, to, should they choose to. And I think, yeah, the, the qualitative stuff is definitely an interesting one as well. I think a big question for us has been around how do we measure efficacy? So we're fundamentally about wanting to have this positive social impact. And a lot of that, when looking at interventions, you know, has been coming from, okay, can we put a number or a score to it? And I think for us, a lot of our, our data at the moment in, in terms of looking at efficacy and impact is actually through women, women sharing their stories. So it's opening up about an experience and how this has changed a particular kind of thought they've had or behavior they've had, less so, you know, what score did they have when they came in and what score did they have when they leave? So in, at the end of the day, it'll be an experience that mm-hmm. has improved and it'll be subjective, but it doesn't it doesn't reduce its validity. It just means that the customer's happy and stayed on the platform. Yeah, and I think it's also thinking through, I mean, we're definitely, we're aware of how do we kind of translate that into a numerical way, especially at the large scale, because I think there's not really anyone out there that will have the data that we will have in a few years in terms of, it's not just about, you know, okay, frequency of sexual interactions or frequency of STIs, but it's actually about how I feel about sex. And that's very different than how I have sex and my behavior with sex. So I think there is there is an element and, and to what I you know said originally, I think we're still kind of figuring it out because it is it's a new territory and it's also coming at it from a lens that is very atypical of how we've looked at this domain in the past. Mm. I guess it just kind of fascinated to see how you guys um put this together 
social proofing for most businesses is really straightforward, right? And it might be really uh, different, but arguably more powerful if you get it right for you guys. Because it, you can't just, there is no, hey, five stars from Trustpilot. Mm. What is the equivalent to that, right? Is it just people are still here and it's the proof is in the pudding. People wouldn't still be here if it wasn't adding value, right? And I think actually what we found so far, I mean, you know, at the moment it's um, the app exists in an audio guide for mindful sex. And that has, um, it's, it's focused on women for several reasons, um, particularly around the pleasure gap and looking at um, research around levels of anxiety, lack of enjoyment and pain during sex, etc. But I think what we found in terms of the, the proofing has actually been feedback that we've been getting from users themselves. So it's messages from women X who's saying, you know, I've been through this experience or, um, you know, I've navigated going through an abortion and I haven't felt particularly comfortable in my body for X amount of years and this is the first time that actually I'm not afraid of touch. Or it's a message or an email from a different woman who's saying, you know, my partner and I have been together for X amount of years and um, we've been struggling around getting in the mood and differences in libido. And actually, it's the first time that we're focused on intimacy as opposed to, you know, the act of sex. And I think for us, it's actually those, those kind of testimonials and those, again, that storytelling from our users themselves, I would say, that combined with you know, word of mouth, like we're, we're ve- we are very early stages in, in the kind of process we're on. And it's been amazing seeing the, the referral side of things and people coming into that community because, you know, so-and-so has said, this has been fundamentally transformative for me. It's not just this nice to have, it's, it's something that's completely changed the way in which I think about my body and I think about my relationship to sex and actually, you know, friend one, friend two, friend three, I think this would really work for you. So I think a lot of it's actually come through almost creating more of a, you know, for lack of a better word, a tribe or a movement around it, as opposed to a customer base. There's a a debate when it comes to certain technologies, whether we're at the tipping point of mass adoption, for example, virtual reality, it's, it's a decent enough experience if you have an Oculus Rift and you have a nice computer, but it isn't the same level of pervasiveness as mobile games on, on, on your mobile phone. So with, with uh, health, health apps and health tech, we live in the health world uh, within the scope of the tech world, and therefore we're a little bit more comfortable because in the tech world you're always playing with new things and you're more open to new, new things. Where are we in terms of early companies like, like yours having to require external um, external methods of partnering with someone or, or getting um, approval from major bodies before customers from outside of the tech industry engage with you guys? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's no silver bullet, right? I think the, uh, the reality of the situation is that it's hard yards and taking um, Bezos' framework, you know, there are some things you can optimize and some things you can maximize or seek to maximize. And credibility and trust in both of our worlds is a is a maximize um, heuristic. You know, we will always be trying to get more people to see what we're doing as credible and trustable. And some of that is partnering with people who can give us the validation that just being our own business perhaps wouldn't provide. So yeah, look, I think there's a there is a reality to that being an ongoing project. The, I think the learning, the key thing for us that Frankly, we got wrong and therefore learned the hard way and to a greater or lesser extent still grapple with is 
you know, to talk to the title of this um, introduction in some ways, prevention just doesn't get people excited, right? And hands up, you know, when I probably sat down and pitched you guys originally, we were probably talking about one in four people dying and death and statistics that scare the bejesus out of people. And that's because it's true. If you get people to act in the way that we hope they will and they're being participatory in their health and well-being, the consequences are really material, as you know, as you're experiencing yourself, I hope. Um, here's the rub, though. You don't acquire them by talking about that kind of stuff because um, a little bit like uh, life insurance, people are prone to temporarily discounting the value unless you can show them something exciting today. So a huge amount of the work that we've been doing is around personalization. And personalization matters so much for us because it is a really, really big part of getting people super excited. So you go from this experience that's really generalized and can be discounted because it's general to, wow, like I, this is nothing like what I get if I go and get a blood test anywhere else. And so, you know, things like um, we just launched um, optimal ranges in the product as of last Friday. Optimal ranges makes a huge amount of sense for us, right? Because we want people to understand based on, to your point, Anna, the most credible science that there is, what really good looks like, not just the standard two deviations off the, uh, off the middle in terms of laboratory reference ranges, which is what things are historically predicated on. Yeah, sorry, it's a bit of a ramble, but hopefully that right. Well, you bring up an interesting point, which I want to keep on asking around the, the polarity between data-driven optimal range type health startup versus um, improving how I feel type startup, which both have value because the person at the end of the day feels like it was worth it. But is there such a thing as an optimal range in, in kind of mental health and sexual health? How, how, do, you, how do you get to... Yeah, so I think it's 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 actually something we've been we've been grappling with at the moment because you know I think for us we've been thinking about proxies. So I know that for my physical health, if I do X amount of cardio and I walk X amount of steps, that's good for this. If I know, or I know that I need X amount of hours of sleep, I need to eat X amount of pieces of fiber and fruit. And yet, when we think about the mental and the emotional side of things, um, you know, mental health more broadly and and sexual health more broadly, it's very difficult to say what quote good looks like and I actually think for us certainly within this domain one of the biggest issues is that people have been defining what good looks like but they've been doing it through kind of mainstream sex education through pornography through um, mass media through what is this very unrealistic hypersexualized kind of romanticized idea of what sex should be and everything from the act itself to how our bodies should look to you know, how we define sex and pleasure. And so I think for us, it's it's been an interesting challenge because we've kind of set ourselves the mission to say, can we actually do that? Can we actually define what good looks like? And I'd like to think that we will. But I think the first stage for us has actually been almost like hacking the definitions of how we've thought about this so far. So it's, it's saying, you know, for example, this idea that sex results in orgasm and that equals good sex is actually rewriting that whole script and saying, why is it that sex has become goal-oriented? And specifically, why do we tend to define sex as, you know, a heterosexual act that involves a certain type of penetration that ends in a certain outcome? And I think for us, it's, it's much more looking at um, the systems around how we experience sex. So, for example... 
um, stress, anxiety, sleep, does that influence my, my experience of pleasure during sex? And how do I redefine what pleasure actually means in a way that's on my terms as opposed to terms that have been kind of, you know, defined for a whole bunch of reasons and imposed on me. So I think we're in kind of this catch-22 where we're saying it is very much individual and it's very much contextual. But on the other hand, surely there are basic things that we all need to do to be able to actually have, you know, a healthy sex life beyond just the physical side of sex, but also the mental and the emotional side of it. So the kind of short answer is, we don't know. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really interesting... Um, very subtle change in question with a very different and much easier answer, which is what does bad look like? Exactly. Right? And that's way, way simpler. Yeah. What does bad look like? It's like, well, that's pretty straightforward. Like these things are clearly not mapping to the reality mm. that they should probably be mapping to. And the way you feel about those things is not mapping to the thing that you would hope to be real. Uh, go, that is probably bad. And we would it kind of doesn't matter what great looks like, mm. but if you're making progress forwards from bad that's just a good thing in its own right right and i think also saying that because i think one of the biggest challenges we found is within this domain there's so much fear around being normal so the biggest question that we hear time and time again and regardless of gender culture age race any of that is am i normal and so i think it's this thing of saying you know who who defines what quote normal is and do we actually have the right to do that because i think another you know awareness that we have is we don't almost want to become the new orthodoxy of what the new normal sex should look like, which in itself is just a replacement for the old one. So it's this thing of saying, okay, can we actually get rid of this concept of normality and can we focus on, on what healthy looks like instead of what you know, good looks like, normal looks like, etc. And that is going to vary to the individual. But I think it's, it's again about understanding, which is, I think, the angle we're very much focused on is the why are we doing these things, less so the what. So... And so, th with that, you open up a big can of worms, which has, which I don't know what the term would be, but let's call it holistic healthcare. Mm -hmm. Let's call it integrated healthcare. I don't know what the right example would be, but here's where I'm going with that. You surface from the data set that you have, mm -hmm. and from the ranges, optimal ranges that people have, that a certain woman or a certain man on your platform is going through a very hard time, mm -hmm. right? And and. You, you're right in the sense that you don't want to have what is normal, what's not normal, but there's like outliers, right? Yep. And those outliers aren't necessarily people that are happy with their circumstances, rather people who are unhappy with their circumstances, and it's well outside of the norm, right? Mm -hmm. So you've, you've flagged this individual somehow, mm -hmm. and this individual, you know from your experience that there are some other variables at play. Now, you can either leave the platform and leave it to the patient or leave it to the customer to figure out what might be wrong. Or you say, actually, you're showing signs of potential low blood count on X or Y or some sort of deficiency, Z or X. Mm -hmm. And one way of getting to the next phase is to integrate with a service like Thriver who will give you the results. Then once Thriver results come in, hey, Hamish, this patient shows that it's got A, B, C, or D in, in things that need to be done, actually, these are the therapists or these are the doctors, these are the surgeons that need to take a look at you in order to do that. And so traditionally that's been the role of the GP to mm -hmm. sort of stitch together all these things. But the problem is that they're only human and as a consequence, they don't necessarily bring all these bits together. And the way that they discover things sometimes is symptomatic, not comprehensive, right? They might, this person might come in saying, I can't sleep, but the reality is I'm having a horrible sex life with my 
my partner and therefore I have depression, which then triggers a certain uh, physiological response, which then triggers that. And the complexity of that is beyond one person's 10 minute slot in an NHS appointment. So where do you see the future of health tech services um, integrating or not integrating? What's, what's preventing that from being the case? How's that going to evolve? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, for, uh, for venture capital, it's, it's kind of the million dollar question. And I think it's the billion, one. Billion, Hamish, billion. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Choose your audience. Billion, hundred billion dollar question. Look, I think a huge part of it is just starting out by recognizing what the system was designed for in the first place and not beating up on it for not being able to do some of what you talked about just now, right? It was designed to provide free at the point of care, sick stroke serious clinical care. What it wasn't designed to ever do was to try and understand the myriad set of um, additional data points that we have today and to play within that suite of shades of gray and, uh, that we were talking about earlier to the slightly more um, tactical question of you know, how does that all actually end up hanging together? I think the reality is that um, fast forward 10 years, general practice, if you can call it that, is going to be much more uh, orientated around functional or integrated medicine because we currently learn medicine <clears throat> uh, as doctors in uh, sort of vertical systems. So we think about the cardiovascular system or the mental health system or uh, things like that. And what functional medicine is recognizing and is part of, I think, the reason that it's um, advancing so quickly as a school of science uh, is that you have to look cross-functionally to get a, um, a true reflection of what is happening, whether that is getting to realize that it is something ultimately derived from a problem with their relationship to their body or their partner or something that is having exactly, as you said, Carlos, a material impact in their physiology, you know, that, that kind of just has to happen. It is actually how our bodies are um, themselves behaving. So if we want to get better as a race, live happier, longer, more fulfilling lives, I think that is a, a big part of it. Now, the challenge comes with where does that come from? Right? And wave the magic wand, wouldn't it be great if we got this from the NHS? Well, it absolutely would be. Um, but I think it's incumbent on um, the health tech uh, startups, uh, including both of ours, to prove the model out, to engage people, to prove that you can actually have people bring you into their health journeys, their well-being journeys, um, and then demonstrate the efficacy and potential impact on a national scale. Uh, certainly what you know, we're trying to do. I think trying to shortcut that process is probably just wishful thinking. Hmm. And how, how do you see, Anna, that playing out? Do you, do you see a next stage of ambition, you partnering with, let's say, Babylon Health and you know, flagging up cases for them? Or? Yeah, so it's interesting. We've actually already been engaging in those conversations. Um, and I think for us, again, it's, it's almost this combination of you know, kind of top-down and bottom-up change particularly when it comes to health, you know, even the fact that we're saying mental health, physical health, sexual health, like in that in itself is almost a detriment to what we're trying to do because it's, it's treating them as silos as opposed to recognizing that it's, you know, our bodies, our systems. And so I think one of the things that's a challenge is you've kind of got this very much top-down approach where it's quite regulated and there's, you know, very large, very heavy, very, I don't want to say kind of 
an evolving institutions. I think they are evolving, but they evolve much more slowly. And then you've got companies on the ground that can be a bit more nimble, that can do that testing, that can build up those partnerships. So I think for us, it's a, it's looking at how do we kind of meet in the middle? How do we know that you know there's these brilliant services like the NHS, but they are limited and there are things that they're not going to be able to do and the, the pace with which they move is going to be very different. So how do we exactly that test it out on the ground and how do we also kind of start to put the infrastructure in place so that when they're kind of ready to meet us in the middle, um, all of that infrastructure is already built. I think in terms of the partnerships for us, it's been an interesting one. Um, and we've actually been thinking about doing clinical trials and partnering with academic institutions around that. Um, so that's, that's kind of one mechanism with which we're thinking about um, trying to speed that process up. And I think that also ties into the that whole conversation around kind of legitimacy and accountability, etc. I think definitely to the kind of earlier point about it being, you know, if we have an outlier that gets flagged, I think there's very much a duty of care as well to say, you know, I think for all of us, if somebody comes up and they need help, help, then it's a matter of if we can't provide that, how do we find somebody that can or how do we direct them the right way? And I think thinking about health collaboratively as opposed to, you know, this is my client or this is my patient or this is my kind of user and, and being protective of that. I think there's certainly a movement towards a more systemic approach and a more, yeah, a more cooperative and collaborative approach of saying, how do we not only just get these people better, how do we actually take them to a point of transformation? How do we use health as a way of, you know, in the kind of most radical sense, creativity or leadership or all of these things? So I think it's, it's, yeah, it's a way of pulling all of our resources together and pulling all of our approaches together and actually just doing the best we can to, to help the people who need it. Mm. So some of the listeners on this particular episode might be startups trying to tackle health tech issues themselves. If you had to give top three pieces of advice for them in early days, what would they be from the lessons you've learned and the pain that you've suffered in getting to where you are today? Top three, and actually the cool thing is that both of you are sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum. So I'd love to hear maybe Hamish if you want to kick things off. Yeah, you're on. So... I guess, yeah, lesson number one, given that uh, a lot of what we focus on as direct-to-consumer would be around build excitement. There's lots that goes into that, but if you don't have excitement, um, you can have all the credibility in the world, um, but it just might not go somewhere. Back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think ours is a bit of a probably more taboo domain still. Um, I think the kind of first learning or first challenge would be very much understand the problem you're working on and I think we hear this kind of starting to come up in the startup landscape of like know your problem know your problem but for us it was so critical to really understand the pain and the problems that that the women we're dealing with are facing um you know there was certain instances as I've been saying okay maybe we should be more pornography because maybe women just need a sexual stimulus and it's like well that's not really dealing with the anxiety and that's not actually solving the problem we want to solve so I think the yeah the the biggest learning would be really just identify a problem know that problem inside out and really really empathize with the pain that the users are feeling um, my second I guess would be um, do the do the big product gambles early um, by which I mean like when you're when you're looking at your product roadmap there's stuff that you think 
is just not going to fly. Like people aren't going to tolerate it. And it's almost always the thing that is advantageous to you, but you don't think people are willing to do it. And we found that subscription, as an example, we didn't have subscription, but we created subscription because um, we picked the phone up and spent half an hour, 45 minutes on the phone to 100 customers or um, and there was damn it. And it's, it's that exact thing of um, you just can't learn that stuff early enough, um, given how precious runway is. I think, so for us number two, us number two um, is much more around, yeah, kind of following up on the product and the user, the user side of things. We very much took an approach around test, 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 test. And there was some kind of hacks that we used that were really helpful in that. So one of them was um, setting up a WhatsApp group. Um, and we actually just put together 10 women who didn't know each other and threw them in and would just kind of fire them questions, test things with them, ask them which statements they preferred, and then also just um, get feedback in that way. And it made it a really easy, affordable, efficient way of starting to get immediate feedback without having to actually have a really technical thing to be giving them. So I think, yeah, particularly if resources and whether that's time, whether that's abilities, whether that's money are tight, I think being kind of thrifty with how you get access to people and just having those conversations really as soon as you can, as frequently as you can, and in as kind of low-fi, accessible way as you can. Yeah, I mean, what's um, what's interesting is I'd say my third is probably not counter to that because we're in different spaces, yeah. but um, on a different tangent at least. And that is that, um, as Theranos proved uh, quite uniquely, MVP of our type of healthcare um, or health tech is really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, with the employees within the company, you know, if we test stuff out and it just doesn't quite meet a particular threshold of quality, it scares people mm-hmm. and that's not okay. And we have a, a really, really, really high threshold for that level of care for our customers. And yeah, there's just a temptation um, to uh, adopt the move fast and break things um, uh, heuristic that I think in, in our worlds just doesn't always apply. Now, candidly, that might mean that you don't get snapped up by uh, venture capital in the way that um, a consumer internet-only uh, startup maybe does, but it's worth it. It really is worth it. You know, you get the great privilege of getting to work on something that has a real impact on people's lives. Um, and yeah, it builds a little bit more slowly, probably, but it's a great privilege. Did no. you have one the last one? Was the third one? Yeah, we both, am I on number three? Yeah, number three. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just on, on that one, it is quite interesting because they are dramatically different different models. Um, ours was like, how do we put together a bunch of things on a paper, um, buy some bottles of wine, get women together in a room and talk about sex, you know, and that's a very different kind of prototype, yeah. um, to say the least. But I think there is something that's similar across both of them around this duty of care. Um, and how do we make sure that regardless of kind of which end of the spectrum you sit at, there is everything you do is guided by ethics and this duty, duty of care. Um, my third one is actually much more, and it's probably similar in some ways, um, around values. So I think what has fundamentally been the sticking point, um, both with our team, with our investors, um, and with the communities we serve, is that we kind of very early on set out our values and 
we do not deter from them. So it's, and you know, we've kind of had variations of the wording around them, but they, they are things that when it comes to making a decision, you know, it's all, it's all good when you're not under pressure, but when you're in a pressure, when you're under pressure, whether that's for looking for money, whether that's like looking for users, whether that's building a team, if you don't have those values to stick through, stick to, I think you can end up making decisions that don't actually align with who you are. So I think for us, it's fundamentally about really hashing out what our purpose is and what we believe and doing doing what we believe in, not just doing what we're good at and making sure that our values kind of in every interaction we have, both with each other and externally, those values are in that through and through. Yeah, I, I, weirdly, we um, maybe not weirdly, I think maybe this is something about something you do see in health tech companies. I think it's also part of the reason that we we just all seem to want to collaborate and mm. understand that we all have finite resources and wouldn't it be great if we could all build everything, but it's okay if we can't because we'll work together and that's we have a, we have some shared kind of doing good ideals. Um, yeah, but we're exactly the same. Like we, ha- we, we have to have a really, really strict value system because I think there is genuine Theranos-esque risk if you end up with a sort of two-speed value system where the, the public-facing um, ideals of the company really don't match to the, um, the, the sort of engine room of um, what's happening beneath the surface. And if you do get those things moving in lockstep, um, it's really powerful and it makes the decisions much easier. Hmm. Well, we always like to conclude with you know, maybe a fun question or a philosophical question. In this case, I think one that might be very apropos for kind of what we've covered is in 50 years, what will we look back on in health tech or in health services and think, oh my gosh, just the way that we think about lobotomies and think, wow, how did we even let that happen? How did that make any sense? Or what? They had like other ones, bloodletting. That was another good one. <laughs> yeah, uh, trepanning. Like, yeah, bore, bore holes in the head. Yeah. So what? What? Um. What? What examples would you give that might work? That where fifty years from now we're like, oh my gosh, how this happened? So I have two. One's one's going to be domain specific, um, and one's more broadly. I think already we're starting to see that, um, and I think we're just at the very kind of tip of that, but. From a sex and sexuality perspective, thinking about that through the lens of health, I think 50 years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to be like, how did we not talk about this thing? Like, how is it something that our sex ed was so bad, that it was so shameful, it was so taboo? And I think, you know, it's, it's that future world where, you know, it's as comfortable to talk about masturbating or to talk about um, preferences or likes and dislikes as it is to talk about going to the gym, as it is to talk about brushing your teeth. And so I think that that would be one of mine, that, um, yeah, this kind of de-stigmatizing de- and taking that shame away from what is one of the most fundamental and basic things we actually do. Um, I think the second one would be going back to the conversation we had around the kind of the NHS and also thinking more broadly about um, prevention versus reactionary approaches. And I think 50 years from now, we're very much going to be in a space where we're saying, how are we not actually much more about prevention? How come we are always about curing the sick rather than, you know, maintenance and keeping the healthy, 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 or keeping us well? Um, so those would be, yeah, those would be mine too. Mm. Yeah, I uh, amen to both of those. I hope it's a lot sooner than 50 years too. Uh, so I have one, um, and this is, I guess, as much about passion that I have as anything else. I, um, 
in the future would like to start a company uh, that is basically a pharmaceutical company, but where the drug is food. Because food is probably the most powerful uh, impactor, if that's even a word, thing that impacts um, how we feel, how we look, how we behave. Uh, that is still really considered as a sort of soft addendum to drugs, right? It's kind of like a postscript. And yet food is arguably the most powerful medicine in the world, as I said. So like creating a, a pharma company that's just all about food as the product would be, I, th I think that will happen. I think yeah. it would be insane if it didn't. And then you get to eat all the time anyways. Right. Well, I don't I'm usually sure. answer this question, but on the tail end, as yeah, what do you think? Carlos? Yeah, what I think. Yeah, I usually don't answer in the own podcast interviews, but I think that the question that I asked you guys about the integration of things, mm -hmm. I think I'd be very surprised if in like 50 years we don't have a more interconnected understanding of of health. You know, like a, there's a really good book um, by Dr. Sarno on healing back pain, and you know, you might have a view on him or whatever. But what's interesting is he brings up this idea of how your body represents physical pain to mask emotional pain. And he went through a whole explanation in the book about how he had patients that uh, were going through very difficult emotional things. And rather than addressing them directly, the body manifested pain. And, you know, his, his practice was based around uh, unblocking that mentally to then deal with the, the physical issues. And if you just look at any other approach in that, in the, in the cases of his patients, you would have had um, maybe surgical treatment. You would have dealt with maybe a very mechanical treatment to what is otherwise a very mental issue in the case of, of the patients that he addressed. And if you amplify that across um, sexual dysfunction, you apply that across um, nutrition, you, you really have a very, very poorly understood and uh, not super interconnected set of you know, health services. And I think that that's going to be the most exciting thing. That and the Star Trek uh, health tricorder, uh, where you can just scan it over somebody's <laughs> body, not need to have any bloodletting. You will just have uh, automatic parsing of the person's health. Those, those are my predictions 50 years in the future. Well, I, mean, I think, you know, there's a, um, the, the reality is that two things are happening at the same time, which is so fascinating, which is you have the, um, the sort of race towards sensor adoption and development so we'll have more data but equally a recognition that we need to be thinking in systems rather than in silos and those two things kind of have to happen together uh, because if they don't happen together then you're going to end up with the right data being analyzed in the wrong way but it's incredibly exciting um, yeah no doubt about that yeah look forward to that well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. It was, a, it was an absolute pleasure to talk about this. And um, thanks hopefully, for having us. hopefully um, all, all the people who are listening got a lot out of it. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.